are back. Six years from the date of our final episode in Cortland, New York, we have returned. Unfortunate circumstances, but now we have no excuse. It's been a long time coming. Buckets and Dan is back. We can't promise how long for, but at least for the immediate future, we're going to be pumping out some good episodes. The bottom line is the people are getting what they want. We've had people waiting since we walked out of that studio at, uh, at Cortland that they, they crave our voices. They crave the chemistry. And, you know, being two guys that know more about sports than pretty much anybody we know, it's nice to give back to our friends and family. It's our little way of giving back. And, and we had a couple people give to us and make this thing possible. So a couple thank yous to, to start with. Uh, you know, it, Dan was kind of on the fence about this. I've been kind of pushing Dan to restart a podcast for a while. And, and he said, well, first things first, you got to get an intro from Ryan Brenner, one of our uh, college friends back at Cortland. So reached out to Brenner. He said, I've been waiting years for this. And about three hours later, our intro was made. So we want to say thank you for that, first of all. Just effortlessly, Brenner. You're just a talented young man. Can we shout him out on Twitter? Can you get his Twitter up real yeah, I'll quick? Yeah, I'll get it going. And we also want to thank Ryan Meisner, our good friend, for creating our logos, our new logo. Wanted to be a little more professional, and he did a great job um, making that for us. We have our names. We have the Buffalo skyline in the back. So uh, because of our, our talented producers, uh, Mr. Mike Licata and Mr. and head producer, Mr. Corey Martin, we might have some merchandise coming that we not only um, will be giving our guests and – uh, maybe perhaps our trivia winners once we start doing that on our weekly segment. But we also will have stuff up for sale for any fan that is just craving to get the Buffalo, or excuse me, the Buckets and Dan logo and um, identity out to the public. Yeah, I mean, looking back, uh, back in at Cortland, this was one of the highlights of our time in college. Started at our sophomore year. Um, joined the radio club. We were on 90.5 The Dragon, 90.5 FM in Cortland. And back then, we had so many technical issues. Uh, we had episodes where we weren't even airing live. We, we had episodes that, you know, it was just Dan and I talking to each other. And then after the fact, we'd realize it wasn't on the radio and it wasn't being recorded. So, uh, we and I don't regret a damn minute. No, I loved I, it. I don't regret a minute either. It was it was an awesome time. We had some fantastic guests, both Cortland athletes, and um, you know some local Buffalo people. We had a little Buffalo flair to the show, and it was just awesome. And I'll never forget walking out of our last show. That was great. And this is just so cool that we're starting it back up. Uh, we have some cool ideas. Dan's been Dan's kind of the I'd say the brains behind the operation in terms of. He's really, Content. really good at editing stuff out. He's, he's putting all the tunes together, kind of piecing it together. Um, and, and this show is totally loaded, Dan, isn't it? It's, it is loaded. It's going to be definitely probably double the length of what we normally will produce. Um, we have Joe Biscaglia on to talk about um, his rise through the ranks of Buffalo sports. And now he's at The Athletic, and he talks with us about the Bills and the NFL Draft. Um, speaking of the draft, you also reached out to Oregon State um, wide receivers coach and now passing game coordinator, Kafensa Hinson, who coached sixth-round pick Isaiah Hodgins in college. And I reached out, and it turned out to be an electric interview, with Georgia Southern head coach, Chad Lunsford. So um, that's all great. And then 
The big idea you had about this podcast is a weekly segment, the Buckets and Dan Buffalo Sports Blast from the Past. Talk about how that originated, Buckets. Well, originally, I didn't think we were going to get Dan on board here. So I thought I was, during this quarantine, just going to start up my own podcast. I reached out to Pat Moran. I asked him a few questions, and I thought the whole podcast that I was going to do, maybe just the Buckets podcast, and I was just going to reach out to, to old former athletes, and just kind of see where they're at now and, and have them reminisce on their playing or coaching days back in Buffalo. That would be the whole premise of the show. We're just going to make it our weekly segment here. And we had a fantastic guest, didn't we, Dan? Yeah, it was interesting. You'll find out in the interview how we got a hold of him, but it took some, some sketchy deep diving on my part. But we did reach out, and we have former NHL forward. He was on the 99 Stanley Cup final team with the Sabres. Dixon Ward will be our guest, and he was great. He was awesome. Number 15. It's funny talking to people about him. It's like, hey, we got, we're, we're interviewing Dixon Ward today, and it just it flickers that light for people. You know, people are like, yeah, I remember Dixon Ward. That's awesome. And, and he was kind of shocked that we even reached out to him. But it really makes sense because uh, this week and even last week and going forward, MSG is airing the 99 Cup run. So it makes sense. Uh, you can kind of pair it together. You can listen to the interview. You can watch the games. He was an integral part of that team. He also uh, was one of the team leaders when the Rochester Americans won the Calder Cup in 95-96. That team was coached by John Tortorella, and he was gracious enough to kind of take us all the way back from his childhood on up until what he's doing now. So that was a really, really fun interview. I don't know if we're... Oh, no, we are. We're recording. Good. <laughs> good. Um, that brings back some memories. Yeah, good. Um, and some other ideas we have, um, some trivia contests. We want to bring in – we want to get you involved. So we want to bring in fans to do trivia contests against uh, either Bill or I, and while the other host runs it, we can do that through Zoom. We can do it through calls. That'll be something. Um, we also want to do kind of like a mail time segment. We're going to put out a hashtag throughout the week, hashtag Q&A for B&D, and we'll use the um, ampersand for the and. I bet you didn't know what that was called. And we'll use, I think I have it, and we'll use the number four instead of um, the actual word four. But you'll see that later on. And we'll also provide our email address, bucketsanddansportsland at gmail.com. You could send in your questions, um, send us some topics. We'd also love to hear who you would want to hear on the show, be it a local sport, um, excuse me, a local sports personality or if you have an idea for the blast from the past segment you're more than welcome to chime in the more interaction we have with you uh the better so that's it that's that's pretty much the introduction anything you want to add nope um okay well then without further ado we'll send it off to joe biscalia from the athletic.com who will talk the bills and the nfl draft here we go and to dive more into the draft and touch on a few other things, Bills and football related, we are pleased to have on from TheAthletic.com, Buffalo Bills beat reporter Joe Biscalia. Joe, thank you so much for joining us on Buckets and Dan podcast this morning. Yeah, thanks, guys. I, I appreciate the offer to have me on and uh, looking forward to talking a little Bills in, in this crazy time right now. Awesome. Joe, Buckets here. Yeah, like you said, crazy time. My first question for you is, how's your hair look right now? When's the last time you've had a cut? Well, look, I preemptively got it cut the day before the Smart. quarantine started. Um, I, I managed to sneak into my barber. It was it was pretty eerie inside the, the barber shop just uh, just to do it. But even still, it's 
it's it's getting pretty long. I was growing up before that, but like uh, I, I cut it down because I couldn't take it anymore. And now it's it's getting back to the same slips in the back and, and all that. The the top cloth is going out out of control. So yeah, it's uh it's it's kind of hectic. How about you guys? Uh, we're struggling. We're glad this is a podcast and not anything video related because we are struggling currently. <laughs> we have faces for radio anyway. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, so before we dive into the draft, let's cover your background a bit. Um, because if I didn't love my teaching job, your trajectory would literally be my dream job. You. Grew up a Bills fan in Hamburg, attend St. Francis, and then St. John Fisher. Uh, when did you know you wanted to cover sports for a living, and was the dream always centered around the Bills? Uh, I, just just one little thing. I actually didn't grow up a Bills fan. Oh, okay. um, I, I grew up a Brett Favre guy more than anything, uh, and you know I'm not I'm not a Bills fan. Never never have been. Was a was a wow, Brett Favre guy. Know that. Huge football guy. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I had both the home and away Packers jerseys. Wasn't a Packers fan, just just followed Brett Favre wherever he went. I just loved the way that he played. But I had this this insatiable um, hunger for for football, and seeing he, him play the way that he does, it inspired me to kind of like, you know, be, become a complete nerd about the sport growing up. So I remember like being super young and. Um, having like, I don't know, NCA football 98 or something and like creating my own 32 team tournament and, and keeping the stats on, on all of the different players. Like the, the, it, it, it got pretty stupid at times, the, the things that I, I would do that my brain would concoct. But eventually I, I, I always knew I wanted to be in sports in some way. Um, but I didn't know in what capacity I, I started off going to Florida state for a, a couple of years and I figured, okay, well maybe, maybe communication. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it, but it, it would have been cool either way. So I, I did that for a couple of years. I had a work study program where I worked um, on the Bobby Bowden show, like on the back, back at channels of it, like uh, taking tape from certain games and converting them. And so that way they had it for the show. But, uh, but so that was pretty cool, but they didn't really have a great communications program. And, um, and then it, I had somewhat, I emailed the, the then boss at WGR, uh, Andy Roth, and I just said, Hey, these are, these are my specs. Could you, would you ever be up for an internship if I was to come in there in the summer? And he's just like, well, I don't have anything in the summers, but, um, if you ever come back to Buffalo and you want an internship, call me you have one. So that was all that I needed. Um, and so I moved back up and, and attended to Buff State for my final two years. Uh, fell in love with radio at that point because uh, one of my professors and and then, of course, the internship at WGR. I had that my my final semester of my senior year. And then uh, right after the internship, my, my boss was, was like, uh, I thanked him and I just said, look, uh, I really appreciate it, and um, you know, let me know if there's anything I can do for her in the future. He's like, whoa, 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 and settle down for a second. You're, you're not going anywhere. So he signed me up to be a part-time board op, pushing a, a random button during a NASCAR race uh, uh, once every half an hour or so on the weekends, uh, on holidays, stuff like that, uh, like Sunday night baseball. That that was another thing that I finger quotes produced uh, or just ran the board for. Um, and then eventually just got into writing a little bit more, uh, really started to cut my teeth on the draft and then 
from there kind of took off and uh, did GR for, I think, I don't know, five, six years, then went over to Channel 7 for four, and now I'm at The Athletic, and it's uh, it's a dream come true, to be honest. So I just completely made up that you went to St. John Fisher. I apologize. No, no, no. You you have it right that I went to St. Francis. <laughs> Got it. Okay. I, I heard right. that part. I <laughs> went right. to St. Francis High School. Didn't go to Fisher. I went to FSU for a couple years. Uh, saw the complete craziness of the party scene at Florida State for two years. It is intense, believe me. Uh, and then uh, went to Buff State for my final two years and, and figured out what the heck I wanted to do with my life. The classic Florida State to Buff State transfer. Uh, so <laughs> what era of Buff or not, not Buff State, what era of Florida State football was that when you were there for those two years? Not a great era. Um, it was the one of the worst quarterback eras in Florida State history. It was the tail end of the Chris Ricks era, who was one of the big-time prospects out of high school. He was like a five-star recruit, number one in the nation. They got him, and he was just awful. And so they replaced him. It was my freshman year. He was a senior. They replaced him, I believe, with Wyatt Sexton. Um, and it, the one freshman that I really liked was Xavier Lee. They ended up converting him to tight end. And so it was just, then it started the Drew Weatherford era in my sophomore year. I'm just like, enough is enough. Get me the heck away from here. So, so yeah, it was, uh, it was not a great era, but it was really cool seeing that stadium packed. I think it's like, I don't know, somewhere near. 90,000 at capacity. It might be a little bit high, but, but still just the, the atmosphere when everyone's doing the, uh, the, the tomahawk chop uh, throughout the stadium, it, it just reverberates. It's, it's a pretty cool atmosphere there. And you know, the, the football wasn't great, but my favorite memory was actually going to a lot of the baseball games because they had the baseball player of the year that year. And also uh, going to the basketball games because I got I joined a club where I could stand courtside right behind the media row, wow. and so I actually was uh, right behind the media row, right behind Dick Vitale when FSU, who was not good that year, upset number one Duke uh, that had JJ Redick and Sheldon Williams, and they were uh, undefeated at the time. So that that was a, a highlight for sure. Wow, who was the baseball player? Shane Robinson, he was drafted like late by the St. Louis Cardinals, had a cup of coffee in the MLB, but like his his final year, I think he hit something like 560. Like he was pretty good. absolutely insane. Yeah, above average, I'd say. Yeah, yeah center fielder, uh, just a really small guy. I think he was like 5'7", but he just hit everything. He was really good. And you mentioned your love for Brett Favre. Do you still have nightmares for when he <laughs> tried crossing the moats that one game? <laughs> No, no. At that point, I was covering the team, so I, I uh, removed my uh, my Brett Favre goggles. Uh, but uh, at it is kind of cool, though. Um, one of my first few years at GR, we we used to do the uh, the Jim Kelly uh, ran run uh, Hunter's Hope Radiothon event, and so they would put us in touch with a bunch of big time former players to help drive uh, drive some people to donate to the cause. And uh, in my time slot, it just so happened that uh, uh, that was the only time slot that Brett Favre could do. So I actually got to interview Brett Favre uh, one of my first few years in, oh, in media, which was just an absolute thrill. And I got him to admit uh, that he was 
finally, finally, finally done. No more coming back. It was that point. It was like, you know, one year he comes back, one year he doesn't. But he's like, yeah, I'm good. Uh, we're, we're good here. <laughs> nice. And then um, what was the most difficult thing about jumping from radio to TV? And what made The Athletic so appealing to leave Channel 7? Well, I think the I wanted to challenge myself, certainly, um, from from radio to TV. I mean, the one thing that's that's always reigned supreme with my career has been the writing. It's something that, I, you know, it's I've always felt like I connected the most with with people, especially on Twitter and social media. Um, and so that was one thing I really started to do a lot of it at, at, Chan- or at uh, WGR. And then when um, Channel 7 asked me to come over there, they said, we want you to do all that same stuff, but we just want to teach you TV. So I wanted to challenge myself to see if, uh, like, what what exactly I could do, maybe a little bit differently. Um, the sports casts that I did there were uh, more opinion and analytically based rather than just uh, who, what, when, where. Um, sort of, sort of things. Uh, I I really didn't do highlights a, a whole a whole lot. So I think the biggest difficulty was trying to be a radio guy, which was talking at you know twenty to twenty five minute spots at a time, and trying to boil that down into two and a half minutes for sportscasts, where you have to keep it quick pace, have it match video, and all of those different things. I learned a ton. Uh, it was an awesome experience. I got to work with a ton of really great people. Uh, Matt Bovet is still one of my very good friends to this day. I text yeah, with him almost daily. He's, he's just a great human being. Um, but, but yeah, it was, that was, that was fun. But at the end of the day, it all came back to the writing. And that's, that's where I really felt like I was, I, I was the strongest, even though, you know, it, it's, it, it's just a matter of trying to figure out what you're truly uh, what what truly drives you, and I think the writing really resonates with some people. And um, so when the athletic came calling, this is a a national brand, and working with just this incredible roster of writers all over the country, where I can I can go on our Slack channel and just reach a beat writer, like one of the most prominent beat writers on every single beat. Uh, whenever I want. I mean, there's Premier League uh, writers, which I'm a huge soccer guy, so I could go and, and chat with them if if I'm ever needing an Arsenal fix or anything like that. Um, so it, that part was was just completely jaw dropping when they wanted me of all people. Like I, I'm like, okay, are you sure you want a radio guy or a TV guy that has hasn't had an editor in his life to date? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we think uh, your analysis and, and your writing uh, really resonates with people. And so they, 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 for some insane reason, wanted me, and I, I couldn't pass it up. Yeah, it's great. We both um, subscribe to Athletic. We like your stuff. I think it really is you. just a um, fountain of knowledge everywhere, any team, any sport. It really is great. So if you're listening and don't subscribe to The Athletic, I definitely would recommend. So – Let's move on to the Bills. Um, let's go to the offseason as a whole first. They don't have a first-round pick. They go get Stephon Diggs from Minnesota. Um, it's been talked at length. Um, but in your opinion, what makes Diggs a legit number one receiver, quote-unquote, and how does his skill set complement the receivers already on the roster? Uh, I mean, when, when they went and got Stephon Diggs, 
that was like Christmas day for me because I'm a wide receiver dude through and through. Like I, that's, that's the position I, I think that I know more than any other position. And so getting back and going and going to study every single one of his snaps from 2019, I wanted to see exactly what they were getting. And the thing that stands out above all else, like people will talk about the separation, everything like that. And it's true with the separation, but the separation comes from the footwork, which is absolutely insane by him. Like he, he's a smaller guy. And so he really needs to work at it. But the way that he sets up defenders, how he speeds into his breaks and just stops on a dime and then either carries on with either an out route or a curl or a hook or, or, or an in route or a slant. Like he leaves, he makes the defender. If it's a man to man coverage scheme, he makes the defender freeze for a quarter to a half a second. And that is all you need with, with separation. And then he has the speed and the explosiveness uh, to get out of that breakdown and, and get even more separation. Like I remember one play in particular, he was running a, uh, a, a comeback route on the right sideline. I don't remember who he was up against. I think maybe someone from the saints and, and he just, he, he needed a, a, a four yard gain on a comeback. He ended up going seven yards, broke down, made the, made the defender bite so hard that somehow within, you know, one to two seconds, he had four yards of separation on a, on a comeback. Like this is the type of talent that they're getting with him and the ball skills in the air, the contested catch ability, the only thing that you are losing is long speed in terms of uh, teams or players might be able to chase them down or, and uh, of course the size, but they value separation over everything yards after catch. He's really good there. I mean, this is a legitimate number one option and now it's on Josh Allen to be able to take advantage of all of that and, and figure out exactly how to target Stefan Diggs a bunch because it needs to happen. And he, he is a dynamic player. And the best part about this is Stefan Diggs' presence will take uh, attention away from John Brown, who is a more than capable second wide receiver on a roster. So this is, this should be fruitful for Josh Allen and the Bills offense. But then again, it all depends on whether or not Allen can bring it all together. Yeah, and you're not worried at all. I mean, I know that as soon as a player gets traded, you see the fan base on Twitter just bash him because they lost him. But you hear stuff about being a diva and a problem on the sidelines. Um, do you think there's any worry, like if things don't go well right away, that Diggs could become a problem in the locker room? I, th- I don't know that it's necessarily a locker room problem. The majority of the stuff that I've heard and of people and just – looking at his body language on the field it is most of the demonstrative actions come when the vikings were losing or it was near a tie ball game Diggs is wide open and cousins doesn't even look his way i I think that was that really frustrated him because cousins while he will take some shots deep down the field his mo is usually to find something within the one to eight yard range. He likes to dump it down quite a bit. And I think that frustrated Diggs because he is above average and really above average, really at, uh, at intermediate routes. 
and there were times where he was running open in in seams of uh, of zone coverage, and um, Cousins just wasn't seeing him, wasn't looking at him. And even when Adam Thielen wasn't playing last year, it still continued on. And that led to some frustration for him because he just wanted to be a part of the solution for what was happening. And I think it just had kind of a a domino effect to where, you know, eventually he, he just didn't, he couldn't see himself with Kirk Cousins for the long term because they, they have a clear, um, they have a clear vision with Cousins as their quarterback. They made the playoffs last year. They made the playoffs, I think, two years ago as well. So um, they they know that he's their quarterback. But I think for Diggs, he just wanted a fresh start with a quarterback that will give him more more chances. And Allen, as long as uh, as long as he doesn't uh, become Trent Edwards, which I don't think he's he's going to, uh, I think uh, Diggs not. will get a lot more uh, passes thrown his way. All right. So this has been amazing so far. Let's finally get to the draft. Um, <laughs> They they stand pat at 54 and take A.J. Epinesa. Um, Is there anyone in that spot that you would have taken if you were the GM? I'm a big Christian Fulton guy. I hate our – I don't hate. I really don't like our cornerback two situation um, going into the year. But was the value too great that they simply could not pass up on Epinesa? Yeah, I I mean, the the value on him there is is great. And he's going to project as their long-term starting left defensive end. And so that that's difficult to come by, even though he's not like the the speed rusher on the right end that you always look for to, to be able to beat the athletic left tackle. But still, the the ability for Epinesa to be a solid run defender on first and second down, and then even to kick inside on third down as a defensive tackle next to Ed Oliver, um, that in itself is a great pickup. In terms of players that maybe they they didn't go for. Um, you mentioned Christian Fulton. I didn't really like the fit of Fulton for the Bills. When most times when they look at cornerbacks, especially early on in the drafts, uh, they look for a few separate things. They look for uh, instincts and zone coverage, which Fulton has, but more so they look for tackling. And because the way that they play their defense is, they have they usually shade their defensive ends a little bit over the tight end. So, so that way it's not a prototypical wide nine. And, and so that way they're taking off the edge contain. They try to siphon their running backs out uh, the, of the offense. They try to uh, make sure that run goes wide because they want their cornerbacks to come up and be able to come away with the tackle or their safety and things like, or their linebacker because they think they value quickness in their linebackers. So that's why they value tackling so highly. And then, of course, um, the arm length wasn't there for Fulton. And usually they don't veer too far from the arm length. Like their, uh, their average arm length that they've drafted over the past, uh, before this draft, over the past six years was, I think, somewhere around 32 and a quarter. Yeah. Um, Trida- that's right where Tredavious White was. And then uh, a Christian Fulton, I think, was like 31 and three eighths or maybe a little bit below that. Uh, so that's usually too far for the threshold. Um, but in terms of other players, it's hard to argue with it. I mean, Jeremy Chin would have been an interesting piece just because they want a big nickel. They probably would have been in the conversation for Kyle Duggar if he was at, there at 54. Um, Uche was kind of intriguing just because you can kind of line him up as a linebacker. You can kind of line him up as a as an edge rusher. But 
at the end of the day, the value of Epinesa was spectacular. And, you know, I really liked him. He was my third rated defensive end in the draft. And I, I think they got a really good player there. And then moving on, right after they, they drafted Epineza, I was just hoping and hoping and hoping um, that Zach Moss would be there at 86. And then just to see A.J. Dillon go off the board at Green Bay and then Kashawn Vaughn go off to Tampa Bay, I was surprised to see those two guys go ahead of Moss. Moss was the guy I really liked. And then that was like Christmas Day for me, getting Zach Moss. I think he's the perfect complement to Singletary. Um, what do you think? Yeah, he's good. Uh, and the fact that he has that downhill style and also the ability to chip in on all three downs if they need him to, if Singletary gets injured or he needs a, an extended rest during a game, I think all of those are good. And the one thing that Brian Dable uh, values above all else is having differing styles in running backs so that way he can go from one game plan to the next and just kind of shapeshift his way through an NFL season. That's what he learned in New England. Uh, that's what he did for the most part uh, last year as as the play caller. I don't count 2018 with him because he was so um, handcuffed by the offensive roster and the fact that they didn't have an, uh, basically an offensive line to speak of outside of Deion Dawkins. But in 2019, we saw a lot of the way that I've always looked at it has been like hockey style changes where you see just wholesale three, four skill players go in, three, four skill players come off. Um, and usually it was John Brown staying on the field the entire time as one of the, the five skill players. But that, it was just to try and drive different, um, different matchups, catch the defense sleeping in terms of substituting. Uh, that's, that's the way that Dable really worked last year. And I think this gives them that flexibility to where if he brings on his heavy personnel – then they then teams still have to bear in mind that Zach Moss is a capable receiver out of the backfield as well and has enough get up and go to to really burn you if if you're not if you try to sell out for the run. So I think all of these different things are something that is right up uh, Brian Dable's alley and and he'll have some creative game plans for sure with these two guys. It's an awesome answer. And then moving on, they uh, I was a little bit surprised to see him take two receivers, but I think, you know, more and more I think about it, it does make sense. So Gabriel Davis in the fourth, Isaiah Hodgins in the sixth. We actually talked to Isaiah Hodgins' position, Isaiah Hodgins' positional coach at OSU, and cool. he had, you know, of course he had awesome things to say about him, but I, I think two really good value picks. You say you're a receiver guy. What did you think about those two yeah. guys? Yeah, Gabe Davis is more so in the mold uh, in terms of where he'll play. He'll mostly play at the X position, I would think, uh, it, which is where John Brown usually lines up. Um, just because you look at deep speed, separation, all of those different things, and uh, and that X receiver needs to be able to beat uh, their defensive back over the top uh, just to influence. They usually line up uh, the furthest away from, from the rest of the formation. Uh, and so it, you usually want that guy to be able to win straight up down the field one-on-one. And I think if, if uh, you know, the fact that I think Brandon Bean said something like 30% of his routes were deep routes, which is just insane to think about. Um, if they bring him along and they have the time because they have the, the top three and Diggs, Brown, and Beasley ahead of them, if they bring him along and, and teach him route running with Chad Hall, who was a really good route runner back when he was in the NFL, uh, that that will – definitely help him in the conversation to potentially take over for John Brown 
once uh, he is done in Buffalo because he's in his 30s. But it gives them a, a contingency plan uh, past their top three. And uh, I, I honestly think we'll end up seeing Gabriel Davis somewhere between, I want to say, 10 to 25 percent of offensive snaps throughout the season, which is a, a fair amount as a wide receiver for just because he has that size and the, the ability to go beat a, a defense over the top. I think they'll, they'll mix him in just to do that. And I, I honestly think he, he brings all of the skills that they wanted Robert Foster to have, but Foster just not a, not a great route runner. He's not great at tracking the ball. He's not great. Uh, at bringing it down in contested situations. He, a lot of times he lets it get into his pads and it bounces away. Um, so I think Gabriel Davis is a is a direct answer to what they hoped Robert Foster would develop into. And then Isaiah Hodgins is more of your classical Z receiver. Like He'll, he'll be the one to uh, motion usually because he's off the line of scrimmage and um, mostly attack the intermediate areas. Although he does have a very nice double move to where he can gain separation on the on the second level past the linebackers uh but still what you really want from him is the ability to get those tough catches along the boundary um over the middle of the field those types of things because he's got spectacular hands one of the best pairs of hands in the draft and then from there um try and develop him and trying to teach him little tools to enhance his route running to where he can he can get better separation because that's not great with his game right now. And that's something he's going to have to overcome if he wants to make it. But, uh, but they drafted a developmental X and Z receiver. And I, and I think they they're coming away pretty happy with that. Yeah. You mentioned Robert Foster. Is there any chance that he could take Isaiah McKenzie's job? You know, everyone talks about that one jet sweep he had versus Denver. And I don't know why I don't like McKenzie. He's really never done anything to me. And he's, has shown much more in the NFL than Robert Foster. But um, obviously Foster is an uphill battle. I just think he provides more as a whole than McKenzie, but McKenzie plays his role well. Any chance he could uh, outlast McKenzie for that slot guy that runs the jet sweeps and whatnot? I mean, there's a chance, although I think the one area that Robert Foster will need to show up if he wants to make this roster is on special teams. And I'm not – I'm not sold that it's going to happen for him because they signed Taiwan Jones to take up one of those two gunner spots, which is the, one of the main reasons that they kept Foster around last year down the stretch of the season. Uh, that it's it's going to be an uphill battle for him. Uh, McKenzie, I don't even think he's a he's a guaranteed to make the roster this year. If you if you look at the roster just for, uh, just up and down and trying to figure out exactly what they're going to do this year, like it's it's kind of insane how much depth they have across all the other positions and to where they could have kept seven receivers last year. They don't have that flexibility as much this season. So if they want to keep both Gabriel Davis and Isaiah Hodgins, along with Diggs Brown and Beasley, that puts them at five already. They love Andre Roberts as a return guy. So that's, he's probably going to be their sixth. So is Isaiah McKenzie even going to make the team? Uh, That's, that's my wonder in this because you have, Diggs, who can play the slot if something should happen to Beasley. Brown can play the, the slot as well. Uh, Isaiah Hodgins can be a big slot. Um, I'm sure they'll probably have someone on the practice squad that would be able to do it. But it, I, I, I don't know if it's McKenzie versus Foster or McKenzie versus himself to make this team. Interesting. And then we, we wrap up with three guys that are definitely on the bubble to make the team as a whole. But 
quarterback Jake Fromm, kicker Tyler Bass, and we actually interviewed um, Bass's head coach from Georgia Southern, who was electric. So we are big Tyler Bass guys now. I am done with Steven Hauschka. And then uh, Dane Jackson, cornerback from Pitt. So I, I, I would be um, – I would look back and be disappointed with myself if I didn't ask, what is the Joe Biscalia draft grade? Um, everyone hates these, but I love them. The draft grade for this Bills Hall. Uh, I would give it a solid B plus because I think they got that. Tapped in the wide receiver market a couple of times, which was smart because it was such a deep class and you end up getting better values because Gabe Davis is probably a third rounder most years and they got him late fourth. Uh, Isaiah Hodgins is probably a fourth or fifth rounder most years, and they got him late sixth. So th- those are those are definitely good values, uh, without question. Um, the the From pick is could be good value. Uh, he'll they're being very careful with how they talk about him, and they're not. They've been asked a couple of times about if he'll compete for the backup job, and they have gone out of their way to go to say, okay, look. We just want him to come in and compete, see where he's at. And uh, and they're they putting next to no pressure on Matt Barkley with their public comments. So I think if Fromm makes the team, he's going to be the third QB. Uh, Tyler Bass is an interesting one because it's. I think it was a bit of a luxury pick for them, but I don't think it's a guarantee that he makes the team. He has to either tie or beat Hauschka outright. And where it's really going to come down to it is – his consistency from zero to 49 because Hauschka is usually great in those areas. And if Hauschka beats him in those spots, then I think Hauschka's going to hang on to the job. But if, if uh, Bass shows the same level of consistency, the tie will go to the guy with the bigger leg, which is Tyler Bass and who's on a, a lesser deal. So right. that should be an interesting one as camp goes along. And then Dane Jackson, I think they, they said they look at him as an outside guy, but his, his measurables and his game, look to me screams nickel cornerback um so i wonder if he's going to be a long range backup slash uh special teams slash probable practice squad guy to start his career so i'll give it a a solid b plus some good value no home runs but uh but yeah it's a, a good rotational pieces for 2020 and then our final question and i'm sorry for keeping you so long this has been great um our final question you're looking, good looking around the division and again, I am certainly not a draft expert. I actually just follow the draft um, network.com and then just read it as much as I can and follow those guys. But from the guys that they were talking about beforehand, I thought the rest of the division had really, really good drafts. Um, I hated Kyle Duggar going to New England. I think he's going to be a great Swiss Army knife for Belichick. Um, I was really disappointed mm-hmm. that the Dolphins got Tua and didn't reach for Herbert. I think Herbert stinks. And... Um, I definitely drank the Bryce Hall Kool-Aid, especially with him falling so far and the Jets grabbing him. And Denzel Mims in the second is very frustrating. Um, do any of these or any others stick out and worry you uh, as a Bills fan moving forward? I'm not a big Denzel Mims guy, for what it's worth. Um, I, I just I, I don't like how he wins enough um, to warrant for me saying, you know, that's that's probably going to be a home run for them. I, Good, that makes I, me feel better. I, when he was getting that first – yeah, when he was getting that first round buzz, I, I didn't really understand it. Um, him going in the late second, I understand that more just because he's got size, contested catchability, all of that good stuff. Could be a weapon in the red zone, but but yeah, I don't. I don't I'm very curious to see how he wins at the next level, um, especially without some uh, good 
the separation that you always want out of receivers for bigger receivers anyway. Um, but I think uh, the rest of their draft was, was pretty solid. The jets wise. I mean, they got backed in, which offensive tackle was just a huge problem for them. And they got a, a one of the most incredible athletic profiles you've ever seen in, in Beckton, who's like borderline 380 and moves around like he's 300. It's just ridiculous oh, to think about how well he moves for a guy his size. Um, Ashton Davis is a good pickup for them. I, I liked their uh, fourth round pickup in James Morgan, um, the developmental quarterback out of FIU. Uh, so they, they definitely improved their roster a bit. Uh, but then New England, I mean, Duggar is going to end up being the one that got away for the Buffalo Bills if he develops into something because they loved him. Um, our Patriots writer over at The Athletic, Jeff Howe, uh, talked with the associate head coach at Lenore Ryan, who was pretty tight with, with Kyle Duggar. I believe he was also the either the assistant or the regular defensive backs coach. And, and he said that Someone from the Bills told him that if Duggar was on the board at 54, that he would have been the pick, which is, I mean, it, it makes sense because they've wanted to find a big nickel for the last four off seasons and haven't been able to. Um, they drafted back in Carolina, a guy to be their big nickel in the first round in Shaq Thompson. And if you look at their measurables, Duggar and Thompson kind of mesh uh, one with one another. And then on top of it, Duggar is, two times more explosive. I think his broad jump was nearly 20 inches better. His vertical was nearly 10, 10 inches better than, uh, than Shaq Thompson. So they wanted him badly, but uh, of course the Patriots took him so, and they're, they're better for that. And then the dolphins, how could they not get better through the draft with all those draft picks True. Um, to a, It's going to be, I'm very intrigued to see how they handle Tua and Fitzpatrick this year Tua could end up being a steal at five. Uh, and uh, I, I'm really compelled to see what they do. Austin Jackson is a good developmental offensive tackle prospect, but they, uh, they're, they're now nickel corner, and they have three good corners in uh, Igbenagane uh, from Auburn, who was their late first-round pick, and then they have Byron Jones and Xavier Howard on the outside, so they're going to be good there. This is going to be a good Miami defense, and if their offense can, can get up to speed quickly enough, then they – could factor in um, with a lot more wins than they did last year. Uh, and with the AFC East basically being up for grabs, I'm not ruling out any one of these teams with the off seasons they had. This is, this is going to be a, 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 a slug punch match yep. um, with, uh, with how these four teams are, are set up right now. My last question for you is uh, I want your recommendation here. So we're starting this thing on buckets and Dan called the blast, the Buffalo sports blast from the past. So every week we'll have kind of like a super retro interview. We'll we'll call someone up and and see where they're at and talk about their their days in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. This episode was Dixon Ward, if you remember the old Sabres player from the late '90s. Um, but um, we're, we're thinking about a Bills player next week. So who should we reach out to first? You you can only choose one of the four here: uh, Marcus Stroud, Jeff Ooh, okay. Posey, Melvin Fowler, or Izell Reese. <laughs> Wow. Uh, who's the third one he said? Melvin Fowler. Melvin Fowler. Uh, oh, this is, this is good. <laughs> Stroud is a character. So he's, he, he might be a good one to talk to. 
I thought you were going to ask me to fill in the blank. Uh, but let's see. Stroud, I, Stroud would probably be my, my pick for this. Although it's uh, the idea of getting Jeff Posey on the horn is, is interesting too, <laughs> because he was one of the first ones that chose Buffalo as a free agent. If, uh, if I had to fill in the blank, I would tell you guys to go find Arthur Motes. That's what I was going to ask. If you had to fill awesome in the blank. To talk to. That would be a good one. What? What's that? I didn't hear that. I was gonna say if you if you had to fill in the blank, I saw I heard you say that earlier. So I was gonna say if there's any guys um, throughout your tenure that you think would be good. So you say Arthur Motes, huh? Motes, Motes is great because he's he just treats you like a human, and he's he's a he's a good guy. He's got a great family. Um, he's really active on Twitter. Uh, and he'll, he'll do anything for anybody that he's just, and he'll always, he always talks when he, with like a smile on his face. Like he's just, he's just a genuinely good dude. And he would, he would probably be fun to talk to, especially with, uh, your, your don't cross the moats question from earlier. That's a good point. All right, Joe, thank you so much. Uh, this went way longer than I thought, but you were outstanding. You really went in depth (laughs) with every question. So, um, stay safe during this quarantine and maybe we'll get you back on if this football season starts up in the fall. Sounds great, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Give me a hell yeah! And thank you to Joe Biscalia of The Athletic. That was a really, really good interview, um, really insightful, and it made me miss listening to him on WGR 550. He was awesome there. And uh, I remember streaming it on your phone when we were in court. That was like when that was first becoming popular. Yeah, and if you don't, really, if you don't subscribe to The Athletic, it's, it's worth doing. Uh, there's just so much knowledge there. It's really good. Uh, and don't ever be the person that, comments back on an athletic writer that says, I will never pay for a sports article. <laughs> Those people are the worst. And we got through, you know, over 30 minutes with Joe B there and and barely touched on the later round picks. He gave a ton of knowledge about Apeneza, about our receiving situation. He's really a guy who, you know, there's a lot of sport media personalities out there, but I really trust uh, Joe B because I know he actually is a football junkie, and I know he actually sits down and watches snaps over and over and over again. And, and when he talks about guys, uh, you should listen. So just I thought wanna... his insight on uh, just bashing my Christian Fulton pick was pretty insightful. There's, he had to have read there. Right? There's no way he went back and looked up the measurements of every single corner that's played for the Bills in terms of I believe wingspan, because that's insane. Yeah. So thank you, Joe B., Okay, and then note who we have next, Bill. Our next interview is Kafensa Hinson. A little bit of background on him. Um, we reached out to a bunch of all the colleges, really, who of Bill's players that were drafted, and Oregon State was the school that got back to us immediately, asked us whatever we needed, and Kafensa Hinson is the receiver's coach. He's worked with Isaiah uh, Hodgins, who we drafted in the sixth round for the last two years. So he really has a lot of great insight, especially being a positional coach. Just got promoted. And he also just got promoted to, the pa- to be the passing game coordinator. So hope you enjoy this interview with Oregon State receivers coach, Kafensa Hinson. Here we go! All right, now for our first guest today, we're going to bring in Coach Kafensa Hinson. Just a little bit of background on Coach. Uh, coach Hinson is the Oregon State wide receivers coach, and Actually, just this past month was promoted 
uh, to the passing game coordinator as well at Oregon State. He spent six years as an offensive coordinator in college football. He's been a college football coach for 16 years, and uh, he actually started coaching at Oregon State just in 2018. So, Coach Henson, just want to say, first of all, thanks for coming on with us today. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. So, as as I said, you started in 2018. So, the year you began uh, was right after Isaiah Hodgins' first year, after his freshman year, where he caught 31 passes for two touchdowns in two touchdowns. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about the receiver he was then and the type of growth that occurred with him between then and his sophomore year where he had 59, you know, 59 catches and nearly 1,000 yards? Um, I think for him, I mean, he was always a pretty talented kid. Um, I think, you know, learning defenses was kind of the next progression for him. Uh, I think, his, you know, as a true freshman, um, I think to some degree you just kind of go out there and play off natural talent. And, uh, you know, as you get older, you start to notice the defense and what those guys are doing. And then that, that kind of dictates what you do and how you do it. So I think he grew a lot uh, from that, just a football knowledge standpoint. Um, I think he got a little faster, got a little bigger, got stronger. Some of the things that naturally happen as you progress through a college program. Um, I think his routes got a little cleaner. Um, you know, had you know, he, he was able to kind of tighten up his footwork, and uh, he's always caught the ball really well, and, and that that was something that he always did pretty naturally. Um, but yeah, I just think some of it was just kind of the natural progression guys guys take from their true freshman to sophomore years, um, and you know, I think the team got better, and I think that always helps receivers when you got a when you got a good team. Um, and yeah, he had a pretty good sophomore season, and you know, he really really kind of took the next step. And then progressing off that, his junior year was even better than that. Your quarterback, Jake Luton, who was also drafted to Jacksonville, he took a major step forward, throwing for 28 touchdowns. And Hodgins really had a breakout year. He had 86 catches, nearly 1,200 yards, 13 scores, and was named All-Pac-12. So his jump from his sophomore to his junior year, did that come as a surprise to anyone around Oregon State, or was that kind of expected through the work you saw that he put in in that offseason? No, it definitely was not a surprise, um, and it was expected. I mean, he put in a lot of work in the offseason, really uh, changed his demeanor, kind of how to prepare, how to, you know, from, from how he ate to how he worked out um, to how he studied. And kind of the jump he took from freshman to sophomore year, he took as big a jump from sophomore to junior year um, and just really committed himself to becoming what what he is. And, and uh, you know, I think playing in the NFL was a big goal of his, and I think he knew that in order to do that he would have to take a, a, a leap and um, kind of do some stuff in terms of just how to prepare off the field, um, studying defenses, really honing in on those individual matchups he'd, he'd have with the corners and the safeties in the Pac-12 and and uh, just really committing his, his life to kind of being what he wanted to be, which was a pro pro player. So, no, it was definitely not a surprise. Um, you know, with his work ethic and how he sees football and how he works at it, um, that was kind of my expectation was for him to take that next step and become, you know, a dominant receiver really in the country. 
And uh, his scoring did slow down a bit at the end of the year. Was this simply the case of seeing more double teams, being the focal point of the offense that the defense wants to take away, or those first few games just being an unsustainable production for a a receiver in college football? Um, I think it had more to do with the – you know, the, the offense and it did him individually. I mean, he didn't change. Um, some of it was, you know, we, we were playing some of the better teams toward right. the end of the year. Um, but no, I mean, he was the same player he was. Um, you know, if anything, it's just a matter of us not, you know, we got to find ways to get him the ball. And, and uh, no, it wasn't a reflection on his ability at all. Just kind of the way it went. And from what is stated about Isaiah, speed doesn't seem to be his best attribute. He ran a four six one forty at the combine. Do you foresee this being a problem at the next level, or do you think his game speed, great hands, he only dropped one pass this last year, masks his straight line speed when it comes to route running and separating from defenders in contested catch situations? Um, I, I don't think it'll be a problem. You know, I, I don't. I think for you know Isaiah's a high four five guy consistently um mid to high four fives i i think that's plenty fast enough to play receiver um i think there's a misconception on how fast people really are in football mm-hmm. um, i think you know if you're running a mid to high four or five i would think you're a fast player i know there's some guys that are obviously faster than that but to play receiver you're not running 100 miles an hour all the time i mean it's about changing tempos and body position and understanding leverage and um, and then obviously catching the football, and I think Isaiah does that exceptionally well. Um, he's got elite lateral quickness. You know, if you look at his short shuttle times and, and those sorts of things, he's right up there with the best in the in the country. Um, and those are the traits, I think, that lend themselves more to being a great receiver than straight-line speed. Um, you know, I mean, if you look at the guys that are in the Hall of Fame, there's a good number of guys that are in there that are probably four or five guys that, um, quote unquote, you know, aren't seen as fast receivers. And so, uh, he's got great game speed. He's got a really, you know, he thinks he understands football. He's got a, a good idea of space and, um, how to win. And I think those traits, those are how you get open in football, you know, and I just think, you know, I think the speed thing is a little misunderstood, to be honest. Um, I think, you know, if you watch the kid play, and if you really study his tape, he's open and he gets open and he plays fast. And a lot of that is just because he can see and anticipate the field and coverages and um, and he just understands space. And so, uh, no, I don't think that'll be an issue for him at all. Um, you know, I genuinely think the kid's a, a really good player and, and, and his best football, I think, is still ahead of him. Um, I think he could come in there day one and be a threat in the red zone just by his understanding of football and how he runs routes. And I'm excited to see him, you know, his, the next stage of his progression. Yeah, so are we. And I think we're most excited because Isaiah stands 6'4", 209, and he offers size that not many currently, not many current Bills have to be the red zone threat. Uh, he caught all 12 balls thrown to him last year in the red zone for nine of his touchdowns. What does he do so well in this area that accounts for his production? Well, I think, you know, when you play down in the red zone, I mean, you don't have the the length of the field to, to work with as a receiver. And so defenders know that, defenses know that. Um, and what Isaiah does really well is he can sell the, the width of the field. You know, he can drop his hips and, 
give you an out move or an in move and get you moving laterally to win vertically. Um, and I think that's just, you know, I, I, you, you see that in basketball, right? Because guys aren't ever really going through defenders. They're going to go around them. And I think he kind of plays down there the same way. You know, he's got great lateral quickness. He can change direction um, at the drop of a dime. I mean, he's he's really quick that way. And so um, we used him that way. We designed a lot of routes for him to kind of use that ability. Um, and then he catches the ball, and he's got great catch radius because he's 6'4", and he's long. Um, and he's got elite ball skills, and he can make contested catches, so he doesn't have to be wide open to catch the ball. Um, really, he just needs to have body position, and he'll he'll more than more times than not make that play. So, um, I think all those things kind of were a factor, and and uh, and then he just understands concepts, and so you can move him around. He could play in the slot, he can play outside, he can play at Z, he can play X. I mean, he was. You know, he's a smart football player, and he's not a one-trick pony, and, and you can move him around, and he would learn and understand what to do and how to do it. So, Yeah, and building on that, he, he played both outside and in the slot for you guys. Um, where do you think he'll find the most success lining up in the NFL, or would you recommend moving him all around, kind of like your staff did throughout his career? I think, you know, uh, he, he moves around. I think it just depends on what you're trying to get done and matchups and um, that that was the beauty of Isaiah was you could really put him wherever you wanted the ball to go because he could learn it and you know not all receiver spots are the same I mean it's not you know you just learn one and you know them all I mean there's teaching and different you know space and routes and dif- different defenders you're running routes off of and so they are different positions um, and and he played all three of them for us and and I think he can continue to do that and, you know the NFL rosters I mean you you, you don't have 10 receivers you're going into a game with usually you know maybe got six seven at the most and so you need those guys to be multiple and versatile and i think he can do that um so i think he's you know he can play wherever i think it just depends on what you want to do you know week to week matchup to matchup um he's got the ability to do that and and i foresee that probably staying the same once he gets comfortable in the offense he'll be able to move around and and adjust off of where they want to put him or other receivers. So we've touched on his size and versatility, um, but at the end of the day, he comes into a wide receivers room in Buffalo that is crowded and faces a bit of an uphill battle as a sixth-round pick. What advice would you give Isaiah, and what is his biggest weakness that you'll think that you think he'll have to clean up if he wants to be a Buffalo Bill this year? Um, the advice I gave him was just go work, man. You know, he works. That's what he does. Um, that won't be foreign to him. He, he knows what the challenges are, and um, he's just going to work. And he'll put his head down. He's a pretty humble kid. Um, and so I expect him to just go in there and do what he's always done, and that's work. Um, you know, in terms of weaknesses, I, I don't know that he has any, you know, just blatant weaknesses other than experience. You know, he needs to go in there and learn so he can play fast, um, so he can, you know, go in there with some confidence and, um, and then the other factor is special teams, you know, and that's something I've always preached to him is that, hey, you know, you need to go in there and you need to play teams and, you know, you need to wear the special teams coordinator out. And um, that's usually the difference in those, you know. I, I always thought, you know, when I, you know, I did a couple of NFL internships and looked at the NFL rosters, there's usually two guys on that roster that are paid to play wide receiver. And then the other guys are special teams players that can play wide receiver. And, um, 
you know, depending on where you're drafted and, and the roster you go to, you, you might be one of those guys that they need to be a special teams guy that can also play wide receiver. Um, and that changes throughout, you know, people's careers. But initially, his thought to me should be to go in there and try to earn a spot on special teams and keep developing as a receiver. Um, and the rest will kind of take care of itself. And so, um, and he can do that. He's a good football player at the end of the day. He's a good athlete. So I could see him playing on teams and, and earning the role that way as well. Did he play special teams at all through college? Um, he did a little bit on punt return. Um, he didn't return punts. He was kind of a front-line guy. Um, but we, we didn't use him once it became evident that he was going to be our marquee guy. Um, we just kind of wanted to save him from himself. He was really upset about that and wanted to do it. We just didn't, you know, it was just a team decision. Um, but he practiced it every day, and he was all about doing the drill work. And um, so it's something that he can do for sure. It's just something we didn't ha- we didn't ask him to do it. That's awesome, and that kind of leads me right into my next question, which is: since Coach McDermott took over in Buffalo, he really all he he stresses character all the time. That's like his big big thing. Uh, so I'm just wondering if you could just kind of talk a little bit about the type of teammate and the type of person. Uh, that Isaiah was at Oregon State. Uh, I mean, he's he's awesome. You know, he's wired right. Um, you know, he was raised right. I mean, he's a good kid. Um, very mature. You know, not easily distracted. Um, you know, just a really good person to be around. Good sense of humor. Um, easygoing kid. I mean, you know, pretty humble. And it, you know, it's almost not a reflection of how competitive he is as a player because off the field, he's just a really good humble, you know, easygoing dude. Um, you know, he's married and expecting a kid. And, um, you know, I know his family and his faith is important to him. Uh, and football, and those are really kind of the three things that, that make him go. And, um, no, he's, he's awesome, man. I think, you know, Buffalo, I think, is a good spot for him because I think those, you know, the people there appreciate that and players. And it seems like Coach put together a team full of good people and good competitive football players, and I think he'll fit right into that culture and, and thrive. That's great. And that actually, you mentioned his bloodlines. That leads me into my last question. His his dad <clears throat> did play in the NFL, uh, won a Super Bowl at the Rams in 2000, actually. Uh, do you think that, it, you know, can you speak if you think that had, you know, if his dad had any impact on him, if you think that helped him kind of mature into the type of, worker and the type of young you know the college player he was and the young professional that'll be oh yeah absolutely um yeah i think you know his dad's awesome and and i think his dad is really was really good you know and it seemed like from the outside in was really good about just helping him along the way and and teaching him and giving him advice but not being um you know commanding or overbearing or you know just kind of letting him learn the lessons he needed to learn on his own, but still be in there to provide some insight. Um, Cause obviously he did it and lived it. Um, and so, yeah, I think when you have a resource like that, that you can talk to and you see often and you can, you can tap into, I think that's definitely going to benefit you. Um, and I think Isaiah went about his junior year in college a lot like a pro would, you know, and I think he had that direct knowledge from his dad and, um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's a resource that served him well and will continue to serve him well, um, you know, because, it's, again, it's, you know, 
I just think anything, like if you're a young kid, you want to be like your dad usually. And, um, you know, being around pro athletes at an early age, I think that all kind of helps. And, and uh, you don't forget those things. Those are impactful moments for you. And so, um, I, yeah, I absolutely think that has something to do with it. Well, thank you so much, Coach Henson. Uh, super, super kind of you to come on and spend some time with us. Really early out your way. What is it, uh, 6.30 out there or 7.30 right now? Or... 6.30, yeah. Up and, up and at them early. Well, we really appreciate you coming on with us, spending some time, and you gave some really, really great insight on uh, the receiver that Hodgins is and the type of person he is. So I just want to say thanks. Yeah, no, no worries, man. I appreciate you. All right, so another shout out and thank you to Coach Kafensa Hinson. Um, You know, it was a little early there. It was 6.30 where he was. So this interview that we're about to have provides a little more juice, but great football insight from a guy that's very knowledgeable. Um, I, for one, am now super excited to see Isaiah Hodgins um, and workouts hopefully this summer, but whenever we're allowed to go back to football because I think he could be a dynamic red zone threat, could be a steal, and um, we really appreciate him coming on. This next guest we have on is Georgia Southern, not Georgia State, Georgia Southern head coach Chad Ludsford um, reached out to him via email, responded very quickly, so we really appreciate him coming on. He talks about his kicker, Tyler Bass, who the Bills just drafted with their sixth-round pick. He talks about um, his college career, when he knew he'd become an NFL kicker, and actually find out some interesting things about Georgia Southern. And I, for one, Bill, am now a Georgia Southern fan, without question. Sir, yes, sir. So let's kick it over to Coach Ludsford. Here we go! Sorry about that. A little technical difficulties on our side. How are you doing? Oh, doing great. How about y'all? Good. We interviewed... Um, uh, the because we're Bills fans, obviously, so we interviewed the Oregon State receivers coach earlier, and he didn't provide much uh, energy, but I have a feeling this, this interview is going to be a little different from what I've read up and seen on Twitter and whatnot. I, I, I don't think I'll be jumping through a table, but, oh, yeah. but we, we, we might do something. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Okay, so um, we're ready to go if you are. All right, yeah, right, no problem. And now joining us is Georgia State head – excuse me, oh, shoot, start over. <clears throat> yeah, we're going to have to start that one right, over. Sorry, I'm going to have to hang sorry. up, man. Sorry about that. <laughs> and, it's worked out. And joining us now is Georgia Southern head football coach Chad Lunsford. He coached Bill's six-round pick Tyler Bass in college. Coach Lunsford has been at Georgia Southern since 2013, promoted to head coach in November 2017, where he now posts a 19-13 and 13 career record. Coach, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate y'all having us and uh, just thankful to – be able to talk about Tyler Bass and Georgia Southern football today. Yeah, so let's talk about Tyler. Can you tell us how early in his career you knew he could play at the next level? Was it a accumulation of factors, or is there one particular moment that sticks out? Uh, you know, I you know I thought that he had the talent. Um, you know, we were trying to figure out what uh, you know what he was going to be. We had an NFL kicker on our team. Uh, when he first got here in Young Way Koo, who plays for the Atlanta Falcons. Um, and Tyler was able to, you know, come out and become the kickoff guy uh, Young Way's senior year. And, uh, you know, so that was obviously something that was, was pretty impressive. Uh, but to be honest with you, I, I think when I really started to feel it and, and, and notice that he was an NFL-type kid uh, was his junior year. Because, um, I mean, he was really a difference maker for us his junior and senior year here. 
And you mentioned that he was able to jump on early and do kickoffs. Would you say that's his best attribute as a kicker? And if there's one area you think he needs to improve if he wants to stick on the Bills roster this year, what would that be? Uh, to be honest with you, um, you know, kickoffs were, were great because he had such a strong leg. And, and we, you know, with the college rule of now that, you know, the kickoff return team can fair catch and take mm-hmm. the ball at 25, uh, we didn't really um, put any, you know, schemes in where we were trying to place the ball anywhere. Um, we just had him either kick it deep left, deep right, or down the middle, but we wanted him to kick touchbacks. And uh, so his strong leg obviously allowed us to do that, you know, um, throughout his career. And, and and that helped us because we were, you, you know, you, you don't have to practice covering kickoffs as much with your kickoff team. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the type of stuff that allows you to work on other things during practice. Uh, but to be honest with you, the, the thing that I think is really going to be exciting about him um, for the Buffalo Bills is he, he's very clutch. Like he's a kid when it's time to perform and go out there and make the kick when, when it's time to make it, um, you know, there's, there's no fear in his body. I mean, he's confident he's going to go out there and do it. Um, so I, I really think his strongest attribute, attribute is being clutch. Yeah, he uh, he hit the game winner as time expired in the 2018 bowl win over Eastern Michigan. Uh, double overtime game last year over South Alabama gave you guys the victory. Uh, what 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 makes that clutch gene for him? What what is uh, does he just got a calm, cool mindset, or what is it? Well, he you know he's really what we're looking for at Georgia Southern. He's a kid that comes in and works on his uh, craft every day, and you know he. He, he's a kid that understands that the process is what brings about the results. And so he doesn't get caught up in the, in, you know, uh, being the moment being too big for him. He, he knows that all the work he's put into it, working the different kicks, working the different scenarios, uh, puts him in a position to be successful. Uh, you know, when he, when he hit that game winner against Eastern Michigan, um, in 2018, you know, I, I didn't say a word to him, you know, right before that kick, I, you know, I didn't want to screw with him. I, I definitely wanted him to, do his routine and all that kind of stuff but I did watch him and I I mean you could just tell I mean he there was nothing unless it was just down deep inside and he he wasn't showing it man uh he was just cool he was calm he's collected and he just went through his normal routine day to day so I think that's what you're getting I think you're getting a guy that's just going to work on his craft every day and then when the moment gets there he's ready for it love that now coach let's talk about the transition in weather Tyler's going to have to endure going from Georgia to Buffalo First of all, I'm going to let you know and Tyler know that whatever you guys have heard about Buffalo is most likely overblown. It doesn't snow here 365 days, but down the stretch in December can get very windy, and obviously you will have to deal with some snow. So do you have any experience with Tyler in bad weather games, and how did he do? Uh, we, we do. You know, we had some, uh, you know, some torrential downpour stuff last year that he had to kick in, and it was very difficult, uh, made some big field goals. Uh, one that I can, you know, one game that I can really, um, you maybe compare it to with Buffalo. And again, I don't, you know, I don't know much about the Buffalo weather other than what you just told me. And, uh, um, when we played app state up in Boone, North Carolina, it was a cold, windy, snowy night. Uh, the wind was really blowing hard. Um, and he hit a 49 yarder for us, uh, going into the wind. Uh, that ended up being the difference in the game. Um, you know, we won that game 24-21, and those three points was obviously huge for us. Um, I, you, you know, he, it will be different for him for sure because the weather issues that he's um, 
you know, faced here at, at Georgia Southern uh, are not normal occurrences. Um, so, but what I'll say about him is if he has the opportunity to really practice in the inclement and weather and, and, and really get a feel for things, um, I think he will excel at that. That's great. And he's gone a little bit viral here in Buffalo with these Twitter videos he's putting out of one stepping into 50-yard field goals and whatnot. But when it came to actual gameplay, and I know that every decision is different based on you know the situation and the game, but where in the field did you feel most comfortable sending Tyler out there? And did he ever have to convince you or the special teams coach um, to send him out there as opposed to punting? <laughs> No, no, sir. Um, you know, I felt really confident anytime we had to hit a long field goal, I would send him out there. Um, you know, really, there was there was only one situation where I go back and I wish I would have kicked kicked a very long field goal. And um, I, I may be off on the yardage mark here, but uh, we were fourth quarter against Clemson in 2018. We just scored a touchdown. You know, I think it was 24 to seven. We had gotten the ball back and. Uh, we stalled and we got in a fourth and 22 and we decided to go for it to try to, you know, you know, try to get something going to, to try to come within 10. Uh, but to be honest, looking back on that day, because uh, I believe it was going to be a 60 plus yarder mm-hmm. um, because we were down 24 seven, I was thinking, go for it, try to, you know, try to get a touchdown. But um, I, I really wish I would have kicked that, kicked that field goal because I think that would have shown how strong of a leg he actually had. Right. You know, if you if you if you go back at his career here, you know he's got a, you know, in seventeen he had a long of forty eight, he had a long of fifty and eighteen, and he had a long of forty nine and nineteen. Um, but to be honest with you, you know, I if it was fifty five, if it was sixty, you know, I would not have had a problem trotting him out there. Uh, we just never really got in that situation to to do that. Um, now, you know, in pregame, you know, I'd ask him where he'd feel good from, and he'd always tell me 70. Now, I don't, I don't know if I'd have done that, but, uh, but, but I would have had no problem trotting him out there from 55 to 60-yard kicks. And, uh, <clears throat> Coach, you know, just doing a little research on him, we see uh, pretty much an honor roll guy every single year. Uh, could you talk about the type of person that Tyler is and the type of teammate that Buffalo is getting in Tyler Bass? Well, I, I think that's something um, that, you know, all of our, our whole university is proud of him about. We, we talk about the Georgia Southern man here, and, and when we talk about that, we talk about our identity being blue-collar, being disciplined, being tough. Um, and, and to me, you know, what I know of Buffalo, and I know of the Buffalo Bills, and, you know, really following them, you know, because being a football fan, you, you know, you check on every team. and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just I really feel like that fits the city of Buffalo. And but he, he he's a servant leadership minded guy. I mean, he, he he's going to serve the team. He's he's about he's about the team. He's not about himself. Um, he at Georgia Southern we have what we call a very very strong brotherhood, um, and and we're very loyal to one another, and we don't want to let each other down. So you're going to get a kid that's going to come up there and he's going to do whatever the team asks him to do. And, uh, and, and he's going to be, you know, I've asked the kid to punt for us. He's actually punted in some games for us. Um, we've actually run a couple uh, fakes uh, with him where he's thrown a couple passes. He's actually two for two on passes and I've run a fake with him. Um, you know, so he, he, he was down to do whatever we asked him to do. So you're going to, you're going to get a guy that's, that's just really blue collar and he's very team oriented. 
Yeah, Coach, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us. I got one last question, and you definitely have two new Georgia Southern fans in, Bill and I, but uh, I have a feeling if someone checks out your Twitter, they're going to find a lot more, too. I love these hashtags and these acronyms. Can you just run through some of your favorite that get the Eagles fired up down there? Yeah, for sure. Um, you, know, you know, the ones that are, are Georgia Southern branded, you know, the first one you start with is GATA. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm not sure y'all know what that no, stands for, but <laughs> um, you know, for us, it's um, you know, uh, Ert Russell was the one that started for us. He started our program here, and uh, GATA was get after their ass. And uh, oh, yeah. you know, if, if if you need a G-rated version, it's get after them aggressively. Um, and if <laughs> and if you know, I, I know pro sports is probably not that uh, uh, important, but you know, for our student athletes, sometimes we gotta say get after those academics. Yeah, you know, so that's. Uh, uh, it's really grown into a lot of different things. Um, Hell Southern's another one for us. Um, you know, win for us, and, and win means for us what's important now. We talk a lot to our guys about, um, you know, living in the moment and, and not not letting the moment be too big for them. So, you know, that's one. And shoot, man, we got a bunch of them now. Uh, <laughs> what is the uh, what's the uh, A O one? Say it again. The hashtag A O one. Okay, that that one's you know one that's pretty special to me in that uh, we are um, I'm a faith based person mm-hmm. and uh, you know um, I, I really believe that being defined as a human being doesn't have to be about results. Um, I, results are very important. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but I think it's about you know A O one stands for me audience of one. So you know ultimately when it's all over, you know when God you know, when it's my time or whatever, I want to be defined how I treated people and, you know, how my faith was and, you know, that type of stuff. So the AO1 for us is audience of one. That's a perfect one to end on. Coach, good luck this year. We really appreciate it, and uh, the best of luck to you. Okay, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Give me a hell yeah! Big thanks again to Georgia Southern head coach Chad Lunsford bringing the juice G-A-T-A, get after it. We were buzzing after that interview. That brought back the Cortland <laughs> Buckets and Dan right there. We were we were just pacing around. We went out and ran three miles. Just kidding. No, uh, we did not do that. But, yeah, that you, you might see that GATA hashtag popping up around mm-hmm. the Western New York high school sports scene soon. Yeah, and do right. Those hats he has are sweet. So that led us in to our main segment, all right, um, former Buffalo Sabre Dixon Ward. So you'll understand the process it took to go and get this interview, but he really was great. Um, we told him right from the beginning we want this laid back, kind of like a conversation, less of an interview, and he provided great stories. He um, was joking around with us. He, he really was awesome, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So I am proud to announce the first ever Buckets and Dan Buffalo Sports Blast from the Past, former Buffalo Sabre, Dixon Ward.
And we are now honored to be joined by our first ever guest in the Buckets and Dan Buffalo Sports Blast from the Past series, an 11-year NHL veteran, five of which came with the Buffalo Sabres. He was a key player on the 1998 Eastern Conference final run and 99 Stanley Cup final team. Dixon Ward, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, guys. Pleasure to be with you. Hey, Dixon, Buckets here. Uh, doing a little research, going back on your background. It's I see you grew up outside of Edmonton. Um, just want to know, as a kid, uh, were you, as a young kid, were you always thinking I wanted to be a hockey player? Maybe did you grow up an Oilers fan? Did you want to one day play for that organization? Um, I think uh, probably pretty much yes to all those. Um, I just wanted to play hockey since as long as I can remember. I didn't have any, uh, at a young age, not huge goals and and aspirations other than I love to play. And obviously, uh, when the Oilers... Uh, you know, became who they were in the, uh, you know, early 80s. It's really got me excited about watching that level and watching Gretzky and the, and the crew uh, at 11, 12, 13 years old uh, inspired me to, you know, continue to love the game, and I always had a passion for it. So uh, did I ever think I'd ever have a chance to play in the National Hockey League? No, it never crossed my mind. I was a very small, undersized kid, my, you know, all the way up until – I was in grade 12. I was the smallest kid in school and uh, really had thought I had no opportunities. Um, then one year I grew eight inches, gained 60 pounds in, in the 12th grade, and things sort of took off from there. So when you were drafted by Vancouver in the seventh round, did that come any as a surprise to you, or take us what take us through what that, that day was like? Um, well, you know, it's a, back then it was a lot different. Uh, there was no social media. There was, you know, no weekly, daily draft shows, any of that stuff. I had a, a pretty good indication that I was going to get picked somewhere simply because of the year I, the two years of junior that I just finished that uh, were pretty successful years. So I, I knew at some point I was going to get picked, but I didn't find out until the next day I read it in the paper, to be honest. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, uh, we interviewed Danny Gare back when we were in college, and he, he told us our, his draft day story. He was actually out mowing the lawn, and his mom came out and just yelled, hey, Danny, turn off the lawnmower. You just got drafted by the Buffalo Sabres. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. I think I was out with some friends. I came home. My parents were sleeping, and uh, I think I asked my dad if he wanted to call. He says, yeah, I think somebody called, but he, I can't remember who it was. Or it might have been Vancouver. I'm not sure, so I had to wait till the morning to read it, find out exactly where I went, but... Yeah, it's a little different now. Yeah, so you play four years at North Dakota, and then right after your college career, you jump right into the pros. You join the Canucks for the 92-93 season. You had a really good year, uh, played 70 games, 52 points. Uh, could you just talk us through what it was like from that transition, playing college hockey, jumping right to the pros, and having some success early on? Um, yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I never, I never expected. You know, I had a pretty, pretty good college run. Um, had the opportunity to leave school uh, a year earlier, decided not to, wanted to finish and graduate, so went back, which was the right call. Um, but I never, going into Vancouver and training camp, you know, I remember negotiating my contract. My biggest, the biggest thing I worried about was trying to get an extra $3,000 in the American Hockey League because I for sure was going to end up there. So <laughs> I didn't have any expectations but they gave me a really good chance early, and and 
sometimes uh, when you get the right opportunity, you take advantage of it, and things really worked out from there. So, um, But I was a little more mature. I was 23 years old, I think, when I went in there. A little more ready. And, if, you know, a 19- or 20-year-old kid, I would have never had a chance at that point. So the development time in North Dakota was the key for me. And in the next 12 months, after that rookie year, you were traded twice. I'm reading at least from uh, Vancouver to L.A. and then from L.A. to Toronto. And you spent some time in, in the AHL. Um, was that difficult at all for you, from going from the NHL to the AHL? It was. And, and you know, again, back in, back in those days when I started, the, the, the rookies and the young guys really had, a, really had to work hard to get an opportunity a little bit different now where the young guys are getting exposed a lot more and a lot earlier um but we had such a deep veteran group in vancouver you know even after scoring 22 goals as a rookie i come back and i'm on the fourth and fifth line in training camp the next year simply because we had so many good players so vancouver thought you know i was a trade asset for them because they were so deep up front and that uh Went to L.A., and L.A. was just a mess at that time. They had really no idea what was going on. they just come off the Stanley Cup run, and things were falling apart there. So the next year, when I asked to get out of L.A., and I went to Toronto, and then the lockout started the day after I got traded, so I never even went to Toronto for four or five months. And you're behind the eight ball. I was trying to ask them to put me in the but they wouldn't. I wanted to play, right? So getting back, signing with Buffalo, Going into uh, Rochester was the best thing that happened to me. Uh, refined my game, reformed it a little bit. Uh, John Tartarella really helped me. Learn not just to be a scorer, but to play good defense. and That gave me the opportunity to, to move again back to the NHL for the next five, six, seven years. So that was a really important part of my career. And that leads me actually perfectly into my next question, because I kind of, you know, if you just look at it, it looks like it was the rejuvenation spot of your career that you're in Rochester. And uh, I actually think it might have been one of my first hockey games I ever went to was that game seven uh, when you won the Calder, um, you and Brian Holzinger, Steve Shields. What a team that was led by John Tortorella. So just like doing the research on that year was cool. So in 72 games, you have 94 points in Rochester. Um, again, some of those Sabres from the 99 team are on, are on that Rochester team. Uh, Steve Shields is your goalie. You beat Ron Tugna to the Portland Pirates to send them home and win the Calder. Could you just, I know you, you spoke on it a little bit, but just how awesome was that year? And I remember being in that arena. That was an incredible night. Oh, it was fantastic. Rochester was was an awesome place to play. I, I really, really enjoyed it there. And as a hockey player, uh, the most important thing is a chance to play and contribute. So, you know, I played a lot in Rochester. I got a big role. I was a leader. Um, and so, and had lots of success there. So I really enjoyed that year. Regardless if it was the NHL American, you want to be able to play. You want to be able to contribute. So it was a good opportunity for me to get my confidence back playing with those Awesome guys, like you said, Zenger and Steve Shields and Dougie Huda on, on the back end and Curtis Brown and Wayne Primo were young players that had come up from junior for the run with us. And, uh, some old veterans like Scotty Medcalf and Dan Frawley and a young, uh, a young little guy that, that went on to have a great career and Scotty Nickel. And, you know, it was a really an amazing group of players. And 
that uh, we had a lot of fun together and winning the championship like that was was super exciting. And before I pass it off to my co-host here, Dan, he's going to ask you some questions about the Sabres run. I just, this one popped up into my head. It seems like, I mean, you had that, you had a few years of development and it, and I don't know, maybe just share your opinion on it. It seems to me like, at least being a Sabres fans, Sabres fan and a fan of the NHL, it seems to me that guys kind of get rushed up through the pipeline a little bit and there's more, there's less of an emphasis on the AHL and I think it hinders guys' development. Uh, it does now. I, I get asked this question quite a bit. Um, it's, it's changed a lot. It used to be, it used to be, you go to the American League, you have a chance to earn your way back to the National Hockey League just by performance. But the way the rules are now, it's very difficult for teams to be calling guys up and sending guys down uh, because of the cap rules and, and the waiver rules. So, you know, you can go to the American League and, and and be the best player in the American League. It doesn't guarantee you're getting a chance to come to the NHL just simply because of numbers and room. And so a lot of these teams now will plan, put young guys in the lineup, whether they're ready or not, and uh, and just play them. And, you know, guys, then it doesn't make room for guys that actually earn their way in there. And, and that's just a different way it works now, and it's systems force that, so... You see a lot of young guys on entry-level deals getting opportunities to play. 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know, you weren't getting that opportunity just because you were an entry-level deal and you were less money than a 28-year-old veteran and probably could play ahead of you. So it's it's all different that way. You just got to go play and hopefully things work out. And you mentioned how Tortorella helped refine your game to be a two-way forward. Can you speak what it was like to play for him and if he is uh, as big of a hard-ass as he seems to be now? Because, you know, there's a lot of stories that come out about him, but he certainly finds success pretty much everywhere he goes. Yeah, I mean, my relationship with John at that time was uh, I really, really looked up to him. He taught me a lot. He's a very intense guy. He cares a lot, but he also cares about his players a lot. Uh, there's a difference between a hard ass and a guy that doesn't respect his players. John really did. He he appreciated his players, but he wanted to get the best of them. His job was to make everybody better. That was his job, and he took it seriously. So, you know, I, I don't know the John Tortorella of today, but certainly at that time he was a huge influence on my career and and uh, taught me what it meant to be a real pro, and, and I owe a lot to him. Absolutely. And then the following year, your first full year with the Sabres, uh, you record a career high in points for Ted Nolan's hardest working team in hockey, ended up reaching the Eastern Conference Finals. What was it like playing for Nolan um, and playing on a team that had a reputation of being so hard to play against? And who really were your hardest working teammates uh, on that team? Well, Teddy is a, he's a great guy, a great, a great coach in the sense that Again, he cared about his players a lot. He was very loyal to his players. He knew what his strengths were as a coach and what his weaknesses were. He was surrounded by good assistants that he gave a lot of responsibility to. And Teddy's job every day was to motivate everyone to work as hard as they could. That was that was just the the basis of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you got you know you look, you look through those lineups and and you don't see a whole bunch of leading scorers in the National Hockey League, but uh, every guy out there that Teddy put on the ice was a guy that was willing to go out there and work as hard as they could for the common goal, and and it was the foundation for building what we what we saw the next three, four, five years from that group. So uh, Teddy was a big part of it. 
And um, can you speak, uh, what was it like playing in front of the greatest goalie in NHL history, at least in my biased opinion? Did you know you were playing in front of greatness when Hashik was on the ice? Of course we did. Yeah. We knew every day because we, we got him in practice, right? Uh, I'd go, I remember we'd go through practices where nobody would score a goal for crying out loud. So he wasn't good on our confidence, but boy, he was good for our group and we had trust in him and we were able to formulate a style of play that revolved around you know, limiting grade A chances, but knowing that we had to take some risks because we didn't have, you know, 100-point guys in our lineup. So we had to score as a group. And Dom used to tell us, take all the chances we want. He'll take care of the two-on-ones coming the other way, no problem. So oh. gave us confidence to take some risk. That's awesome. Um, and obviously the 99 team, one of the best in team history. Did, you're coming off an Eastern Conference final run, but you also replaced your coach. Was was there confidence going into that year that it could be such a special season? Um, yeah, I mean, the '98 year, you know, we we had a good run. We should have we should have went to the Stanley Cup final that year, in my opinion. Um, and then obviously moving into the next year, you know, we knew. We knew we had a good core group, and again, it always goes back to Dom, your best player. We knew he was in the top of his game, so there's always a chance to do anything with that. And just uh, kept snowballing and kept building, and it was uh, pretty exciting. What was the biggest difference going from Nolan to Ruff? Uh, the biggest difference, I think, was, you know, like I said, Teddy was a motivator. He was a player's coach. Uh, when Lenny came in, he had a lot more technical structure to our game uh, on the defensive side of the puck and positional play and everybody was you know he was very disciplined in the in the technical side and the structural and the systematic play that was the biggest difference uh, that we saw with, with uh, Lindy coming in and and making those adjustments and and having the ability to to make adjustments in the middle of a game or middle of a playoff series Lindy was you know very strong uh, technically in that sense and so that was probably the biggest difference and you mentioned how that team was built from the goalie out, um, and you guys didn't have a bunch of 100-point scores, but I feel like it, that offensive talent's a little undersold. You had four guys with at least 20 goals, including yourself. Satan scored 40 that year. Who were some of the unsung offensive heroes from that team? Well, if you, trying to, you, look, you, look at the, if you look at the lineup uh, from year to year and depending on the year, but you know from 97 through 99, 96 through 99 um you know you got a guy like matthew barnaby who wasn't considered you know you know what matthew was considered his mm -hmm. career but if you look at his numbers and his ability i think he scored 19 goals one year uh i think rob ray for crying out loud scored 14 one year so um we had just good depth through the lineup mm -hmm. um you know we had we, we did have some we had a lot of guys that good skill most of the guys on that team were guys in junior and college that scored a lot of points so their ability was there you know, uh, to score as we were going through and um, through those years. And then just some adjustments by the time we got to 99, some adjustments were, you know, we lost, you know, Donald Audette and, and Derek Plant and, and these guys that moved on, that they were all pretty good offensive players. Mm -hmm. But guys that we brought in, uh, Jeff Sanderson and Joey Duno and, and guys like that, that that have, that have put up good numbers in the past. So we had just good, solid depth throughout our scoring lineup. Um which allowed everybody to get involved. You know, 
we we played a four line game at back then and and guys on the fourth line still had the opportunity to to put points on the board so that's what was a key to our success and Verada and Pekka seem to be your two main line mates that year talk about the chemistry you had with them on the ice and can you speak to Pekka's leadership as the captain of that team well yeah I mean those guys were were awesome guys to play with in, in, in different ways and you know, Verada was was a guy that uh, was just was our our workhorse in our line. He, he would he was our kamikaze. He'd go, we'd send him on every forecheck and causing havoc and allowed us to, to to make plays because he was such a big strong guy that loved the physical play and very very uh, consistent in the way he played. So it was really easy to read off of what he was up to. And so Pex and I could get a little more creative offensively. Uh, when the chance arose, and you know, obviously Pex, he he was a he was a leader by example more than anything. The way he played the game and the way he sacrificed his body to uh, to create success was was his greatest leadership tool. His, he was a he probably led the the team in hits every year, and he wasn't the biggest guy that you ever seen. And uh, but he also was a very smart hockey player and a guy that cared about both ends of the rink. So having a chance to play with both those guys really made my my life easy and and allowed me to really settle in and play the kind of hockey that I that I uh, had developed into and so it was a great line and uh, the best line I ever played on to be honest yeah and one of the reasons we wanted to reach out to you is because we were pretty young during this whole run um, so during this quarantine MSG the, the hockey network up here is just playing all the old playoff runs and they started with the 06 right. with the Sabres now they're playing the 99 and I could not believe that you like the odds of this happening and how great it must have been to be a fan that you finish fourth in the division and then play the three teams ahead of you consecutively to get to the cup and you romp them. You go 12 and three against the Maple Leafs, Senators and Bruins. What was that like? And did it give you guys confidence playing teams that you played a bunch throughout the year? Uh, yeah, it did. It, it allowed us to formulate, you know, real solid game plans. And Lindy and, and his staff, you know, like I said, they're very prepared all the time. Uh, made sure that we were prepared. We had all the information we needed. We knew the tendencies of every player on the other team and their systems and their power play and their penalty kill. And, and that was, you know, the, the key for us. And it was, um, again, it was about confidence. And playoffs is about confidence of getting on a roll. And, and uh, you know, as we were building through this process, we were we had, we had all the confidence in the world that, that we could beat, we could beat uh, those three teams and and obviously you know we we did and, and Dominic uh, as our foundation allowed us to just keep building through that process and and uh, it was a lot of fun a lot of excitement and uh, and uh, obviously the to cap it off of beating Toronto in the conference final was was awesome yeah I have to imagine the city was buzzing and then Speaking of buzzing, you run into a buzz saw in the Stars. I mean, they won the President's Trophy. They're loaded up front with Hull, Madano, Neuendijk. What are your, I mean, obviously, you know, it didn't end up the way you wanted it, but what are some of your fondest memories from that series, and do you still hate Brett Hull like the rest of us? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I, w I was on uh, on a Zoom, a little Zoom call with Robbie Ray the other day when <laughs> nice. they're showing those games on uh, on the local network, the 99 series, I think they're showing. Mm -hmm. So I would, so I think Pekka and Jason Woolley and myself and a few other guys, uh, doing some stuff with, with Razor and, uh, Marty Beer on. So I, I was on with Razor the other day and we were having a good chat and talking about that. 
I think just the just the uh, excitement of looking around, going, "Here we are in the Stanley Cup final." None of us uh, really ever imagined that we'd have that opportunity to to partake in that, and then obviously to to run up against a team like that with with a goalie in their net that was darn near as good as Dominic, and, and you know, obviously the guys you mentioned. And, um, again, that series, if you look at it, it was the game is a matter of inches, and that was that was something else. I I watched a little bit of the uh, of the highlights of it. I haven't watched the game six for a, well, I don't know if I've watched it ever in its entirety since we played it, but um, we played a hell of a game. I, I don't I didn't remember that. We all played them so bad to the first two periods and outshot them two to one and had a bunch of great chances. Um, every time I, I was watching, I was like hoping it would change, <laughs> the outcome would change, but it doesn't. But um, it was uh, it's pretty neat. Uh, and so it's nothing but good memories now. I talked to Razors. I don't have any any ill will or bitterness or disappointment anymore about all that. It was a great opportunity and it was a great experience. It, uh, all positive thoughts about that time. Nice. And just real quick, um, I know our the people that listen will enjoy hearing this. What are some of your favorite memories of Buffalo? Did you enjoy your time here? Um, is there anything that sticks out as memorable? Um, well, yeah, a lot, tons. I mean, first of all, it's the people and friends that I made when I was there that I still have to this day. And, you know, one of the most unique experiences and friendships that I built when I was there was with Thurman Thomas. Um, it's quite, uh, we got to be quite really close friends and, um, you know, a kid from Texas and a kid from Western Canada coming from two different, entirely two different worlds of life and two different sports. Uh, uh, we became real close friends. So the experience of being around that environment with the Buffalo Bills and Thurman and his family and, and then getting those guys uh, involved in watching hockey. I think, you know, Thurman and Bruce Smith and those guys used to come out and watch us play. And, and we go out and have beers after. It was a pretty cool experience. So such a great sports community. And the people the people in Buffalo uh, were the best part about the whole thing. And uh, people always ask me what was my favorite city to play in. And I was lucky enough to play in L.A. and Boston and New York, and Vancouver and Toronto and uh, Buffalo by far was my favorite place to play and live. No question. So that's a, my biggest memory is just the quality of people and the friendships you made. That fires me up. Uh, real quick before I ask my final question, just to confirm, I couldn't find it anywhere. When Hasek was hurt in the playoffs, was Marty Biron Rollison's backup on the bench? Uh, yes, he was. He was in as the <laughs> – he was part of the Black Aces, I think, at that time. Um, Marty, so, um, when, uh, when Don went down, Roly went in that, and I think Marty was a backup for sure. Cool. And then just kind of did try to do some research, see what you're up to now. Uh, per, help me out on the spelling possibly, but it seems like for a long time you've been, uh, the, you know, with the hockey operations of Okanagan. Did I get that right? Yeah. Okanagan. Okanagan. Okanagan yeah. Yeah. Can, so can Okanagan, I'll give now? you a little background. Okanagan's a region in British Columbia. It's a, uh, you know, a, a big lake that, that runs 80 miles long and in the middle of southern uh, British Columbia. And it's a beautiful mountainous area. It's a resort. It's a resort area. It's the top resort destination in Canada, basically. It's uh, it's a beautiful place to live. And and so the Okanagan Hockey School started 
in the Okanagan here in 1963, um, and it became the biggest, uh, most well-known hockey school in the world. And, and so when I retired, my friends were part owners of or ownership group of it. They asked me to get involved, and, and uh, so I got involved uh, about a year after I retired, and and uh, continued to uh, to grow and build the business, and have been doing it for 15 years now, and. We've got uh, academies and hockey schools all over the world. We're in Europe, we're in Austria and England, we're outside of Toronto and Whitby. We have a program there and Penticton, British Columbia, Edmonton, Alberta, we have academies there. And, and so we got uh, about 350 student athletes around the world that, that are part of our academy program, which is a, which is a, the private hockey and school programming uh, through 10 months of the year. And then we have our hockey camp uh, division in the summers and we hit about 4,000 kids a summer uh, in hockey camps and we do all kinds of different things in the testing protocols and do a lot of work with Hockey Canada and writing policies for them so uh, it was a lot of fun a lot of excitement building and developing young hockey players so that's uh, it was an easy transition for me and it's uh, something we love doing and, and, and built a, a real good solid company here and it's been a lot of fun. That is amazing how are you guys uh, holding up managing through maybe adjusting with the coronavirus? Well, yeah, I mean, we still had uh, three months of, of academy season left in us, April, May, and June. So obviously all our kids are at home now, but we're uh, we're doing, you know, what created a human performance virtual academy program. So every day we're on, our coaches are on Zoom with their players and checking in and, and running through their off-ice workouts and managing their academics with them. And we're doing a lot of great presentation stuff for our kids and, I uh, get a lot of, you know, NHL coaches, NHL players, guys like that come on and speak with our kids and just to keep them engaged and keep them in a in a structured environment where they're uh they have something to look forward to every day to to keep servicing them and and helping them grow and develop uh, even though we can't be on the ice. Um there's a lot of great stuff we can do off the ice which is more important this time of year anyway. So um we're managing through that and and uh but we're excited for the time we can get back at her. Yeah, we all are. And, um, well, that will wrap it up with us. I can't thank you enough for joining us and taking time out of your Saturday morning. We really appreciate it. Thank you for walking us back down memory lane here. And please thank your son, Taylor, for us. I'm sure it was weird having some stranger from Buffalo slide into his messages <laughs> like that. But we really appreciate it, and um, best of luck to you. Yeah, no problem. I, that's, my question is, how did you, how'd you find him? Uh, well, this is awkward. So, Well, I actually yeah. – my. When I wanted to find you, I reached out. I'm, I guess I can call him my friend. I'm friends with John Sinclair. I'm better friends with his son. He, I'm sure you know yep. him. So he was yep. going to reach out to you. And then uh, we, we my friend wait, Dan though. figured was, it out. I was a little impatient. So we, we found your t- <laughs> this is I, your son's definitely going to block me now. We, we found your Twitter, saw that you retweeted something about him for Omaha Hockey um, a while ago. Yep. And I thought, okay, so... I can't. We couldn't personal message you on Twitter because you have to be following each other. So I went to Instagram, looked up Taylor <laughs> Ward, and had to filter and slide inside, and finally found him. And I, I remember my girlfriend saying, "This is a terrible idea. This is so weird." But it ended up working out, so I'm I don't regret anything. Yeah, no problem. Nowadays, that's the easiest way to find your kids because on social media and you can contact them. But uh, yeah, no, it's it, uh, that's good. I'm glad you guys had a chance to uh, get a hold of me. And, uh, I enjoyed rehashing those old days. It's always fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again. Have a great day. Give me a hell yeah!
Great start to the Blast from the Past segment, Dixon Ward. Also, just a great start to the revamp Buckets and Dan. We are podcasters now. It feels good, Bill. Yeah, all you really got to know is we're back. We've never been more back, and we are excited to keep this thing rolling. You know, there's a lot of rumors already swirling. Can these guys keep it up once life's get back on Absolutely track? Absolutely not. No, no shot. You know, we're probably <laughs> we're gonna, we're going to be like Marv Levy's second stint in Buffalo. It's yep. going to be it'll probably be a quick exit around August or September. Maybe have one episode a year or something. But um, until then, we're going to keep having fun with it. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed the first episode. I don't think our episodes moving forward will be exactly this long, maybe a little bit shorter. But uh, regardless, great episode. Uh, thank you so much to everyone who listened, and we're looking forward to doing this again next Monday. Yep, and obviously we want to thank again Joe Biscalia of The Athletic. We want to thank Oregon State wide receivers coach and passing game coordinator Kafensa Hinson, Georgia Southern head coach Chad Lunsford, um, and Ward and Dixon Ward, of course. And thank you again to Ryan Brenner. Thank you again to Ryan Meisner and our producers Corey Martin and Michael Cotta. Um, Mom, I love you. See you next time. Closing time. Open all the doors and let you out into the world. Closing time. Turn all of the lights on over every boy and every girl. Closing time. One last call for alcohol, so finish your whiskey or beer. Closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I know.